to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where at this point, I'm just wondering if we're ever going to get beyond Thunderdome in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today, we are talking about Minute 106, which begins with the model-making team, and it ends with special thanks to the residents of Cooper Pedy, or rather, that is what we would be talking about if we ever took time to talk about the end credits, which we don't. Yeah, we use this time for analysis and deep thought. And we were thinking the other day that we have spent the last several months picking through this movie, like I said in the opener, one minute at a time. We have been combing through this piece of cinema with a fine-tooth comb, and I just feel like I'm a little worried that we're missing the forest for the trees. I think it's quite possible that we are. So what we've decided to do for today is give Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome the hiatus treatment. If you've been with us since the beginning, you know how we handle hiatus stuff. We begin here with you talking a little bit about the movie before we watch it, then we go off and watch the entire movie and leave you here to listen to the trailer audio, and then we come back and give our assessment. So today we are going to be watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome from 1985, directed by George Miller and George Ogilvie, produced by Kennedy Miller Productions. It stars Mel Gibson, Tina Turner, and Bruce Spence. Julia, do you have any expectations for this movie? (laughs) Or rather, do you have any expectations for this viewing? I remember a few months ago, several months ago now, gearing up to start this season, I sat down and watched the movie, which I hadn't done in quite some time. I had kind of forgotten about the whole second half of the movie with the kids. I was surprised. I think I actually said out loud, what is going on? This movie is crazy. What am I watching? So now having picked it apart and then going back and watching the whole thing, I think I'm going to feel smoother about the whole movie. It's not going to come so much out of left field. I was thinking about watching this movie again, and I'm expecting for the movie to be surprisingly short. I'm expecting to start watching and then blink, and before I know it, we're at the end. We've spent so long breaking this down and stretching 107 minutes into hours upon hours of content. (laughs) So I just think it's going to fly by, and I am hopeful that I'll notice something in this viewing that I haven't noticed before because that's just how movies are. Sometimes you can watch a movie for the hundredth time and you'll notice something brand new about it, but I've got hopes for that. I do too. I think this is going to be good. I think it's going to be fun. At this point, we are going to leave you with the audio for the trailer for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. You can listen to that. And when we come back, we will have watched the movie and we will go through it in our classic hiatus style. So we'll see you in a moment. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. No, mister. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. (laughs) He was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the waiting ones? Waiting for what? Waiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back. 
in Beyond Thunderdome. Julia. Yes. Initial reactions. What are they? You were absolutely right in your prediction that the movie would fly by. It was exactly as you predicted. Blink and we're on a different scene. It moved forward so fast and then the movie was over. One thing that I realized after sitting through another viewing, it's that in order for this material to be enjoyed, you have to have time with it. You have to be able to observe and appreciate what's around you. And it made me think about Road Warrior, where Max is very specifically dealing with one situation over the course of the entire 95-minute run. And the thing about Beyond Thunderdome is that you've got Barter Town over here, you got the crack in the earth over here. You don't spend enough time initially with Barter Town to be satisfying. You spend a lot of time with the waiting ones to flesh them out, but then you go back to Bart. It's like they were trying to do two different things. They half-assed two things instead of whole-assing one thing. And I think that's the major weakness of this entry. I think I would have to agree. If the story had only been about the waiting ones, it would have been an interesting premise, but it would have been basically the same premise as Road Warrior. Max comes upon an isolated group who want to move from A to B and for some reason can't and he helps them do so. Same story. So the Georges needed to introduce a different, unique sort of conflict. A reason... They're not even... Bartertown's not even a reason why they can't move from A to B. Bartertown has nothing to do with them. It's just introducing another conflict. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know what Bartertown is doing in the story. It's giving us a location to have the final conflict. You get the sense that Terry Hayes was so jazzed about his kids left behind story that that's where all of the effort went. And I think that's where all of the effort should have gone. I think that's where the better story was. But I definitely see what you're saying. If Max stumbled upon the waiting ones first and had to deal with them wanting to go from their relatively safe location to some pie-in-the-sky location that they've never seen before, yeah, that's the story of Road Warrior. They'd be retreading the same material, except you'd be changing the faces of the people that Max is helping. And it would still have been an interesting story. I agree that something needs to be added to add more conflict. The desert itself is not enough of a barrier, but I don't want the same conflict as Road Warrior where it is an opposing tribe who wants to take over. I don't want that either. I just don't quite know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I love the bits and pieces 
of this movie. But it's just like you said, we get to Barter Town, you blink, and then Max is riding out to Gulag. It happens so fast. We don't get a chance to really get to know Auntie. We don't really get a chance to establish the dynamic between Auntie and Master beyond the one who runs Barter Town scene. And I'm not saying I want necessarily a complete psychological breakdown of every character we come across, but it's such a pit stop. It's not a destination. It's a place where you can fill up on soft drinks and take a bathroom break. That's all Barter Town is before we go off to the next thing. And I just don't know. My initial reaction is more or less that you've got to break this movie down one minute at a time for it to be really valuable. I think I would have to agree with you there about breaking it down in order to really enjoy it more. I don't think that we picked it apart so minutely that it destroyed the movie for us. I think it genuinely increased our understanding and enjoyment of the movie because we took the time to delve into these characters and extrapolate from one expression on their face an entire backstory and an entire psychological history. Yeah. That the movie as a whole, I think, is somewhat lacking. You know what? Let's start back at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning of the movie. We'll break it down as we go. We begin this movie. We got the title screen. We got the opening credits. We've got One of the Living by Tina Turner. And then we fade in on the desert and we're swooping down onto Max. Something did occur to me as we were swooping down on Max that there was a sweeping airplane shot in the beginning of the movie and then again at the end of the movie. I'm not sure if we noticed that when we were in that closing minute with the airplane. It was a nice bookend. All I could think of was how disappointing it was that this Mad Max movie didn't start with a chase of some kind. Mad Max started with a chase. Road Warrior started with a chase. Fury Road is going to start with a chase. This is the only movie that doesn't start with a chase. It doesn't start with an action scene. Which I think could have been easily done. Jedediah literally just swoops in. First time around, he knocks Max off the truck. Second time around, he drops into the seat, and then that's it. There's no conflict there. These movies classically start with a conflict. This is just Jedediah coming in and taking over. Max has no opportunity to fight back. Okay, here's an idea. We start off the movie high shot over the camel wagon. Camel wagons just meandering along. Instead of swooping down on Max and just knocking him out on the first pass, before we get down to the camel car, we see Max on the camel car, notice that the plane is coming, and whip the camels up into a faster speed. And now we've got camels versus airplane, where the airplane is making these sweeping passes. And Max is either moving fast enough to avoid them, or he's maneuvering Maneuvering in such a way that it makes it difficult for the plane. And then after a little while, Jedediah jumps out of the plane, just like he does in the regular movie, and he gets face to face with Max and pushes him off the cart. That way you establish very early on that Max knows the face of his assailant. That is a detail that stood out very much upon rewatching. Max never gets a good look at Jedediah. So how on earth would he know when he meets him later on that he's the guy with the plane? Exactly. It stood out so strongly to me that it felt ridiculous. I like the idea of 
Max having a chance. Max is very clever. Max doesn't usually get blindsided by things. No! You have to set up a pretty convincing trap to get the drop on him. And this was no trap. This was just a guy with a plane swooping in. It's pretty ridiculous to think that you could have a chase scene involving a cart drawn by camels and a plane, but that is just the kind of ridiculousness that you can find in a movie like Beyond Thunderdome. There are going to be weirder things in this movie. Certainly. So the idea of taking a moment or two to just establish that, yeah, Max may not have gasoline anymore, but he can still drive. And by the end of the movie, we get to know Jedediah a little bit. He's not a brute force violent type of guy. He gets what he needs through cleverness and strategy. So Jedediah and Max going up against each other, both trying to outthink the other one, could have been really, really cool. Especially because the chase scenes that we've seen in Mad Max 79 and Road Warrior, those were all cars. Throw in some buggies and some motorcycles, but they're all your standard road vehicle. Well, those are all gone now. Now we have two very non-standard vehicles, this funky little airplane and a camel-drawn truck. So how were they going to have an action scene together? It could have been very clever and very entertaining. But instead, it's over in an instant. And then it's the long walk to Bartertown. Which, as far as reveals of Mel Gibson, it's definitely the quickest that we get compared to movies past. Because movies past have either had long, drawn-out chase scenes or rambling prologues. And they could have done an opening action sequence without revealing that this was... Max Rokotansky. Mm -hmm. In fact, if they kept him covered up completely throughout the whole instance that I mentioned where Jedediah jumps onto the cart with Max, Jedediah could use the fact that Max is covered up with so much fabric to get an advantage over Max, maybe literally pulling wool over his eyes <laughs> and then turning him around and, like I said, pushing him off the wagon. And then we could have picked up right where the movie is, where Max is unceremoniously dumped and left behind without any warning to have time to grab a water pouch or put shoes on still the same left there in the dust mm -hmm. i like that we still get to see the truck drive away without max that he gets left behind in the dirt i like that we still get to see him go on that long walk to make it to barter town that would have been a very nice dangerous but quiet cap on an action sequence yeah, because when we have those action sequences, we have those instances where we can stop and take a break. In the first movie, it was returning back to Max's apartment. In the second movie, it was Max collecting fuel and then going on to find the gyrocopter. Like, we get these little cool-down moments. So you start off with an action scene where Jedediah and Jedediah Jr. are attacking Max with their plane, and then you have the cool-down activity where Max is walking through the desert following the tire tracks, which leads us to Barter Town. And at this point, you've got one of two ways to go. You can either go all in on the Barter Town storyline, or Max loses the wagon completely and winds up stumbling upon the crack in the earth. I feel like in the ideal situation, you do one story or you do the other. You do the road warrior story, but with no cars and the helpless people are children that can't fight back like adults, or you do Max's adventures in Barter Town. I think there might still be a way to do both, to get Barter Town in there and 
the waiting ones. If Max had followed the truck to Bartertown, when he gets there, he tries to force his way in, like we see him do, but there's no offer to be made. There's no use of his skills that are going to get him his stuff back. Mm-hmm. He offends the wrong person and then becomes hunted and has no choice but to essentially gulag himself and escape out into the desert. But the people want him. Perhaps there's a bounty on his head and people follow him out there. So Max discovers the waiting ones. And at that time, there's the whole Captain Walker conflict. But there's also the conflict that they have been discovered by people who are willing to hurt them. Yeah. Because people are chasing Max. So perhaps Max would rather stay and defend the crack in the earth and kill anybody who knows about the place. Nobody leaves the crack in the earth to go tell more people about it. And that still opens up the opportunity for Savannah and her group to want to leave, to want to go find a better place for themselves. So that conflict would remain the same. And then when Max leaves to go rescue Savannah and her group, the only place to go for supplies is Bartertown. And since there's a price on his head, he can't just walk in and say, hey, we'd like to barter. He has to sneak in. Mm. And a lot of that final sequence can be very similar. Like an escape. Yeah. Like him going back to Bartertown is him going there to rescue the kids that left because the kids that left would be captured by Bartertown bounty hunters and brought back to be held in cages. And he would have to break into Bartertown, free them from those cages, run into Pig Killer, they get on the generator train and escape that way still. Yeah. Like there are little tweaks you can do. Yeah. For sure. I mean, we would have lost Auntie Entity. We would have lost Thunderdome. No, I think you can still have Auntie. I think you can still have Thunderdome. Well, no, because that's the only reason why we had to spend so much time in Bartertown was so that we could get to know Auntie and get to know Thunderdome and see a Thunderdome. If you don't want to spend as much time there, you're going to have to drop the Thunderdome. See, I think you have Max walk up to the gate. He has his interaction with the Collector. The Collector gives him the offer, but instead of Max getting Gulag punishment, he gets hard labor punishment and it becomes an oh brother where art thou situation where the hard labor chain gang brings him out to a situation where he escapes from the chain gang into the desert and then is found by savannah so he still gets the fugitive aspect to it yes that would take a lot of time though yeah well this movie's only 107 minutes long it's not that extensive of a runtime right but as it stands now i think he spends too long in bartertown well see that's the funny thing because i feel like he doesn't spend enough time in bartertown if he's gonna spend more time in bartertown then the movie should just take place in bartertown yeah there are two completely (laughs) separate movies here that don't need each other at all and i think the waiting ones are a better story so if i have to pick a half of the movie to ew get rid of it we don't need it it's gonna be bartertown Mm. i know that thunderdome is fun and i agree that it is a lot of fun and it's great cinematography and it's good storytelling it just doesn't really serve much of a purpose to the storyline that is the point of the movie which is the waiting ones all the stuff beyond thunderdome Yeah. yeah thunderdome's not the point Beyond Thunderdome is the point. True. That may be a downside of abbreviating the title the way we certainly do and many others do. They just call the movie Thunderdome. And that completely ruins the point of the title. That beyond part is really important. (laughs) We got off of recapping the movie. So Max goes to the gates of Bartertown and Iron Bar and the guards take special notice of Max and gets up to the collector's desk and he can't sweet talk his way into the city. So he has to resort to violence because that's what he has. That's not 
true. He's clever. He's strategic. He has lots of skills. He's not necessarily a brute force kind of guy. And actually, we do see that here. He doesn't use overwhelming violence to get his way. He uses cleverness and threats and yes some violence when he needs to but the important thing is that he's able to get past the collector and into barter town even if he isn't getting through on his own he's being brought escorted even through the city that must have been very frustrating for max Max is a free agent. He doesn't like being escorted anywhere. This may have felt to him like he was already a captive. Well, yeah, because the last time he arrived at a location and people took a hold of him and started escorting him around, he ended up chained to a handrailing and then raiders showed up and he had to sit there on the sidelines just hanging out with everybody while they get threatened by Lord Humongous and whatnot. Max doesn't really get treated well when he encounters strangers. <laughs> One thing about Max marching through town is I more clearly was able to identify the winch turner, the one wearing the beret as a woman, because as they walk up to the elevator, that actress is looking more or less dead on towards the camera. So you can see her face, you can see the front of her outfit. I was not looking at her the first time we went through these minutes, so I didn't notice it that well. This time, I paid special attention. That's definitely a downside of minute by minute. Something that was in the background on minute 10 comes to the foreground in minute 11. Well, you weren't noticing it in minute 10. So those details, they're gone, they're past. Yeah. You don't remember them. So really all you have to go on is what is in front of you right this minute. And that can make it hard to identify the gender of an individual. Mm -hmm. So Max is brought up into Auntie's penthouse and we get the audition, so to speak, that Auntie puts her people through. I never realized beforehand, before Auntie starts the audition officially, she has Tun Tun start playing the saxophone again. Tun Tun playing the saxophone was meant to mask the sound of the guards advancing on the person taking the audition. Watching it again, he was being auditioned from the moment that he stepped foot out of that elevator and everything was planned. And watching it again as a whole, that was incredibly obvious. Her movements and her actions felt very stilted the second time around. That it was obvious to me that she was purposefully giving certain signs. Like, okay, now I'm picking up the piece of fruit and I'm gonna take a bite and that's your cue. Yeah, she did seem a bit more relaxed after all of the fighting was done. Yeah. Now, speaking of the fighting, when we were watching Iron Bar, lasso max you noticed that he more or less had the chip tooth from the beginning right he did and i'm so glad that i noticed it almost as soon as we met iron bar because going from the end of the movie minute by minute i noticed at the end that he was missing a tooth i'm like oh i wonder when he lost that and it was really hard to go backwards and find every time he was injured and see if I can get a good look at his teeth afterwards to find out what injury did it. He never had that tooth proper. It was always like half chipped off. Mm -hmm. I was very gratified to notice that. <laughs> As we discussed in the minutes, Max is successful. He takes out the guards. I still 
love the expression on Auntie's face when the table flips up and smacks one of her guards in the chin. I could still do without seeing the collector and the face that he makes after he gets a axe handle in the crotch, but it is what it is. The scene was a mix of good fighting and slapstick. Oh, absolutely. Which, for this movie, that's a fine mixture. That's what this movie is. <laughs> right. It's a mixture between a good action movie and a slapstick action movie. And that's just what it is. Not much else you can really do about it. Nope. With Max's skills proven, Auntie brings him over to the Periscope. They take a look at Underworld. And the thing that strikes me the most on second viewing is the fact that there are a ton of people in Underworld. There are so many people in the background, on the side, in amongst the main characters. There are workers and captives and guards everywhere. That's very true. And if this movie was going to be about Bartertown, I would like to have seen a scene after everything falls apart for Master Blaster and Ironbart takes over Underworld, that there is a culling, that there is a picking sides or perhaps a revolt of people who support Master Blaster and them being dealt with. Either shown the door or, more nefariously, some sort of entendre for being shown the door. Yes. Permanently. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Max, after seeing Underworld, wants to get a closer look at Master Blaster. And so then we get the iconic line of, oh, you can shovel, can't you? And then Max goes underground and we get our firsthand look, with Max actually in Underworld, of how it is down there. And I still very much appreciate how noisy, busy, claustrophobic, grimy Underworld looked. When we first switch over to looking at Underworld, I thought there was like rock music just playing blasting out of the speakers or something but then it became clear that it's not rock music it's just the noise of underworld i don't think there's any music playing at all no soundtrack but it's just so loud and clangy and heavy down there that it sounds like loud rock music Right. One thing about Max and his shoveling, he's obviously there to take a look at things. And while I'm sure we mentioned this before, I'm starting to think that the only reason that he shouts out to Master Blaster is because Blaster has Sally Ann. Yeah, that move might have made a little bit more sense if Max had already finalized the deal and already knew that he needed to pick a fight with Master Blaster to get into Thunderdome, but he didn't know that yet. But he seemed to be picking a fight. Yeah, the whole, hey, you, let's talk line. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed a little weird. Do you think that if he had been able to talk his way into getting Sally Ann back, he would have cut his losses and ran right there? I don't think he would have left Bartertown without the return of his goods, without his cart, without his camel, without his supplies. I think that was the only way that he was actually going to leave Bartertown. And if Master Blaster was going to give him that, he would have taken it. For sure, he would have hopped in his wagon and just gone, leaving the deal with Auntie completely unfinalized. Because he's still in the fact-finding portion of this deal. He said he wanted in, but he didn't make the spit-shake deal yet. So you think he was trying to get his attention to cut a new deal? Oh, absolutely. I don't know. Because we get the he next scene. He has nothing scene, to barter with. Because we get the next scene where Max walks up to Master Blaster and Master says disarm and Max says how much. 
Okay, so now he has something to barter with. But back when he called out before the car scene, he had nothing to barter with. I think he was emotionally motivated because he saw Sally Ann being abused. Probably. The situation revolving around the explosive device strapped to the bottom of Max's vehicle, of course, leads to the whole who run barter town scene, which is still very good. It's an incredibly enjoyable part of the movie. It's just, it comes so quickly as you're watching the movie. At this point, you're still only a few minutes into it. This is pretty fast. But it's still very good. And of course, once Master Blaster do their little hissy fit and restore power to barter town, we get Max discovering Blaster's weakness. So now that Max knows how to disable Master, how arrogant he is and whatnot, he goes back to Auntie, says, you gotta deal, what's this fair fight? She explains Thunderdome, and we get half of the namesake of this movie. And the way that Max picks a fight with Blaster is by confronting him in the street, shouting, hey, I want my vehicle back. And Master demands Thunderdome. The idea that the fight is over possession of the vehicle and Master in his plea to Auntie doesn't mention, this guy thinks this vehicle is his, this vehicle is very obviously mine because I possess it currently, let's fight over it. He said, us suffer bad, us want justice. It's very non-specific. It is. I would think that in this justice system, you would have to prove that Thunderdome is the appropriate place for you. If some guy is picking a fight about possession of an object, it seems odd that he can just go to Thunderdome, kill a man, and win the prize. I would think that he would need to plead his case to Auntie, saying, this is why I think I should own this. And then the other guy said, well, this is why I think I should own this. And she decides, okay, both of you have a legitimate enough claim to warrant Thunderdome. Or both of you have a legitimate argument on why you have conflict to need Thunderdome. If one guy bumps into another guy in the street and they start having an argument about watching where you're going and whose fault it was, does that warrant Thunderdome? Probably not, but it all depends on who asks for it. Master is the one that demands Thunderdome. He only demands Thunderdome because the guards prevent him from taking out his own justice. Yeah. So he needs to make himself look better because he was going to exact his own justice. So he needs to turn around and play the victim to pull attention away from the fact that he was about to kill Max. And maybe going to Thunderdome was the only way to make it clear to everybody, hey, I was going to kill him outside of the system, but I will still kill him inside the system because he dared to step to me. Yeah. Whatever circumstances we're getting into the Thunderdome, we are entering this fight. And of course, we get the amazing introduction to the Thunderdome fight from Dr. Dealgood, as good as ever. I would say better than ever. I think this is one part of the movie that suffers because it gets chopped up. Watching the whole sequence all together was excellent. Edwin Hodgman has a cadence. He has a rhythm. He has a pattern that he follows. And when you get to watch it all in one big chunk, it really works out very well. Something that I was delighted by in his speeches, this one and the wheel speech, is how he controls the crowd. He brings them up, he brings them down, just as he needs them to. He gets them to chant, he stops them from chanting, just as it suits him and what he wants this spectacle to be. It's very good. And that leads right into the Thunderdome fight, which, oh my gosh, took us, what, 
two weeks to get through? Six episodes? Yeah, that maybe seems about right. Watching the entire fight together, it's another situation where it benefits from not being cut up. Certainly. And you get the sense watching it all together that all of Max's jumping around and leaping over that it doesn't seem as ridiculous because this is Max using his agility and his cunning to avoid being skewered. (laughs) It is better with the context of he gets the crap beat out of him the first half of this fight. Oh, absolutely. And I love listening to the crowd. I love listening to them count along with blasters punches on Max's shoulder. Yeah. So good. They take every opportunity to count. It's great. Even if it's only to like two or three, they love to count. Oh, and the responses of where they were going like, whoa, like it was so good. It was like a sport crowd. It was. And that's exactly what it is to them. This is a sport to them. And it's... The only one they have. (laughs) So good. Max eventually does get the upper hand. He pulls out the whistle. He's able to disable Blaster and knocks his helmet off. And we get that little crisis of conscience that Max undergoes. Master makes his way into the ring, intercedes, or at least tries to, and then Iron Bar kills Blaster. And the time between we see Max hesitate and Master appears in the ring, it's an incredibly short amount of time. And it definitely makes me wonder how Master, being the kind of guy he is, was able to move so quickly. But then again, time is not one-to-one in this movie. No, certainly not. He may very well have been and passed down person to person. <laughs> and Auntie's box is only like two or three levels worth of people up off the ground. Yeah, he could get passed down pretty easily. Yeah. One big detail that I missed the first time around, when Iron Bar shoots Blaster and we get a shot of the box, Auntie looks rather surprised that Blaster has just been shot. I missed that and I'm pretty sorry that I did. I was busy looking at Ironbar, who does that really stupid blow on the tip of his crossbow thing. And it was stupid again. It was stupid when we covered it in the minutes. (laughs) It was stupid now. And I wish that I had paid attention to what Auntie was doing. Yeah. You get the sense that she didn't arrange with Ironbar ahead of time, hey, if this goes south, shoot Blaster. The shooting of Blaster felt very cold. Just cold-hearted and shocking. Oh, I think it was supposed to, yeah. And blunt. Yeah. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Oh, one thing I want to bring up. That actually happens before Blaster gets shot. Max turns around, looks at Auntie, says this wasn't part of the deal. And it must be that everybody in the town is so obsessed with the idea that deal means an agreement that Master doesn't even let Max catch his breath after saying this wasn't part of the deal. And Master immediately comes in with deal what deal? It's like, okay, in some instances, you can go up to someone and say, hey, what's the deal? Or this wasn't part of the deal. And you could be talking about the circumstance. It could be a turn of phrase. It it doesn't necessarily have to be literal. Oh, no, I think the way Max asked it, it had to be literal. I'm definitely with Master here. Because it's very clear that there was a deal. I could see someone new to Thunderdome who has it explained. It's two men enter, one man leaves, a fight to the death. And so Max could be in this situation looking at a third person who's now in the 
Thunderdome and be like, hey, this wasn't part of the deal. It was supposed to be two men enter, one man leaves, and now there's three men in here. Okay, I can see that. But to counter that, Master is very shrewd and I'm sure very suspicious and paranoid. He's also very smart. So he would jump to that conclusion? Yes, that this was all a setup. Okay. I see where you're coming from, though. Max is, of course, declared a deal breaker, and so they pull out the wheel, and we get that lovely sequence where Max's fate is decided. And before you know it, we're barely 40 minutes into the movie. We're not even halfway through, and Max is already being sent out into the desert. So you say already, I say it's about time. I think... For the first location that helps to set up conflict for the rest of the movie, 40 minutes is too long. He should have been gulagged at 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. 20 minutes would have been the sequence where Max finds his vehicle. That's the 20 minute mark. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the story structure where Bartertown isn't the point and we want to get to the location that is the point, but we do have to set up the conflict for the rest of the movie, which yeah. is Bartertown. So we spend a little while in Bartertown, 20 minutes, and then we move on. And speaking of spending a little bit of time in Bartertown after Max is sent out into the desert. Of course, we get to see what things are like with Iron Bar in charge of Underworld, and it's not great. I didn't like the visual. I didn't like that we get the scene where Max is sent away. We watch him and his horse, with no name, walk out into this almost pure white desert. And my mind wants to stay in the desert. We have moved to a new location now. Yeah. Let's keep going. I don't care about Bartertown. I care about Max. It but, is weird that we leave Max. Yeah, and then we jump back to Bartertown in the middle of the night and see what's going on in Underworld. Now, for their story, that's important, but I don't care about their story anymore. It's not like in the first Mad Max movie where we have cutaways to Toe Cutter and his gang because they are important to the overall story. We need to see what they're up to before they run into Max. We don't have to follow Max day in, day out, all the time, because it's just one story of Max versus the Acolytes. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's like, do they really ever face off? Yeah, in the last 20 minutes of the movie, but that's beside the point. We covered that a long time ago. <laughs> After we're done hanging out in Barter Town, showing that things aren't hunky-dory, even though Blaster's out of the picture, we go back to Max, who is saved from dehydration by Sally Ann as she was sent out by Pig Killer. Max's wandering is not that long of a time overall, probably about three or four minutes, but I feel like it's an appropriate amount of time in the overall run to show, oh yeah, he's wandered out there, he's alone, he's just kind of traipsing, no rhyme or reason. It was a very George Miller part of the movie. He's not afraid, and we've mentioned this countless times, he's not afraid to let a scene or a circumstance marinate. We're going to watch Max walk through the desert for a while. Mm -hmm. We're going to watch Goose drive down the road for a while. We're going to watch the penguins in Happy Feet walk across the tundra in a wide shot so we can see the wind and the snow blowing. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. And George does it well. I would rather spend a few minutes watching Max walk through the desert than the jump back to Bartertown that we did. With that in mind, the idea of letting something marinate, does it feel like Savannah finds Max rather quickly after he falls down? Yes and no. No, because Max is pretty covered by sand. 
around. And I noticed when he collapsed, he didn't really collapse onto a particularly sandy surface. That rock and hard pack had been blown relatively sand free. And we noticed in the first of the time lapse of him getting covered that we go from it being rock and hard pack to being covered by a layer of sand. You can tell that it gets softer. Mm -hmm. And then we get the time lapse where he's quite covered. So I think he was there unconscious laying in the sand long enough. If he had been there longer and there had been more sand piled on him, I think it would have been harder to explain why Savannah found him. Yeah. That being said, in the novelization of the screenplay, he was completely covered. Savannah smelled him, which is impossible to convey in an actual movie. So yeah. no wonder they changed it. Unless you want to do some sort of Lord of the Rings thing where you show a close-up on Savannah and you do the sniffing sound effect. Yeah. Like which, she's a Nazgul or something. Right, which was ridiculous when we saw Legolas do it. Yeah. It would have been ridiculous watching Savannah do it. <laughs> now, my qualm about her finding him is that she walks straight up to him. Over two dunes, she walks from the precipice where she is silhouetted by... The spotlight that's supposed to be the moon. I'm not sure, but it's a spotlight. It's magic. Yeah. She should not be able to see him, but she just saunters right up to him like she knew he was there. Mm-hmm. That's very hard to believe. I was distracted when she walked up and found Max because we've been talking so recently about the fact that Savannah has perfectly shaved legs. <laughs> So as she's walking up, I'm like, yep, not a, no hair. It's distracted. But then again, when she's traipsing around with no pants on like that, it's hard not to be distracted. That's such a man thing to say. Well, I can't help that. <laughs> I've only been a man for 30 some odd years. It's one of the reasons you married me. <laughs> Savannah brings Max to the edge of the crack in the earth. We see the introduction of Finn McCoo and the other waiting ones. As I saw Finn McCoo and that lizard, I was reminded of the story that Adam Skoogle told us about being brought up the side of that cliff by production and him being incredibly scared of the heights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and production saying that he should get a medal for bravery because he was so scared doing it and he was able to pull it off anyway. I got a good laugh out of that one. Yeah. Max is, of course, brought to the crack in the earth and they get the whole maybe he's talking through Sonic thing where all the kids are gathered around him. We get to see Screwloose with his Bugs Bunny toy. And then we transition into the hut where Savannah is cutting his hair. When we encountered this scene in the minutes, did we talk about the fact that it was raining? Is it raining? It sounds like it's raining in it that scene. It might have been raining in the haircutting scene. Yeah, in the haircutting scene. Possibly. Where they had that drapery across the door. It wasn't super clear to me. No. Did it, was, it just sound like it was raining? Yeah, it was the sound effect. I know that biomes can change quickly. You can have a desert pressed right up against a luscious green space. It just seems odd to have rain pushed right up against a desert because desert doesn't have anything to do with temperature it's amount of rainfall yeah i like the idea of the crack in the earth being down along some sort of canyon or valley with a river at the bottom of it because then all the arid winds are blowing at the top of the canyon and everything down below it is preserved all of that moisture is trapped down there i don't know if that's how canyons work but that's the idea that i like seeing and later on when we see the kids run out to the plane like it's no big thing kind of hurts that idea of them having to go down into the crack in the earth from that 
desert. I think the edge of the desert and their location in the crack in the earth is further away than we are led to believe. I am very willing to believe that. Yeah. The way they show it to us makes it seem like, oh, you just go over the edge and down a bit and you're there. I don't think it's that simple. Certainly not. Max wakes up in the crack in the earth. He's surrounded by kids. He's freaking out. Slake shows up, quiets everybody down, and very quickly we transition into the tell. And I actually like the way that the tell slows things down a little bit and really fleshes out these people that we're dealing with because this is a level of fleshing out that is just more in depth than what we got in Barter Town. Sure, we got the speech from Dr. Dealgood. We got the whole idea of, hey, we don't fight here because we don't want wars to start between big groups of people, but it just seemed more heartful, to use one of the phrases of the waiting ones, <laughs> when we were there in the crack in the earth and all the kids were participating more actively. I really enjoyed the tell as a whole, once again, because it wasn't cut up. Watching it all together, I really enjoyed the participation from the kids. And I really noticed more their coordination. The kids that form the plane, they're pretty obvious. But then the little line of kids in front of them that say bye bye mm -hmm. and nobody else does. It's just the five or six young kids right in front of the plane. And that coordination goes on through the entire tell. It's a performance. Yeah. Not just from the person who is telling the story, whether it be Savannah or Slake. It's a group performance. It's delightful. It is. I wouldn't say that it completely redeems them in my eyes from all of the shouting and mimicking that they were doing to Max before. Oh, no, that was rough. It was. It was. I'm surprised we got through it minute by minute. <laughs> Max, of course, is not happy about the idea of being told that he is their savior, and so he tries to reject it and, of course, has the worst timing imaginable to throw his hat in the air because it gets picked up by a wind, and then the entire crack in the earth is filled with this gigantic wind, and the the kids run off to their crashed plane. In any religion, there is this concept of signs and symbols. And this is one of them for the kids. The whole catching the wind thing. Yeah. This stirring of the wind. I wonder how often this happens for them. Has it ever happened like this before? I would imagine that if the wind ever picked up in the canyon quite like that, they would have taken very close attention to exactly what preceded it. It might just be that Mr. Skyfish is Mr. Skyfish because he did something one day and then a big gust of wind blew into the crack in the earth and everyone was like, oh, hey, you, Mr. Not Yet Skyfish, you're now Mr. Skyfish because you did something random and the wind picked up. That would kind of explain his prominence in their society. He seems to hold sway and the more established leadership listen to him. Mm -hmm. And I find that odd in someone so young. Yeah. So they must listen to him because of something. We get to see the plane. We get to see all of the kids running down the dune. Something that I definitely didn't notice the first time around is how... Screw loose, even though he's one of the last people out of the crack in the earth, he books it around and through everybody to get to the plane sooner than most of those kids. Yeah, he's quick. So Max is looking at this big plane. They're like, hey, Captain, we got the wind. Let's go. And Max turns and walks away. I really feel for Max here. What is he supposed to do? He can't do what they want him to. Right. It's not out of an unwillingness. He's physically not able to. He's not Magneto from the X-Men movies. 
Right. It's not like he can just pick up those pieces of metal and fly them through the air. It's just not how it works. So Max turns his back on the kids. They go back to the crack in the earth. They're all sour about it. And Savannah decides that she's going to forge her own path, take a bunch of people and leave. But of course, Slake doesn't want them to leave. Max is trying to explain to them all the dangers out there in the wasteland. And they want to go anyway. So Max ends up shooting at them and punching them in the face and tying them up. It's nothing that's going to get him a father of the year mug. No, not at all. I still find this scene a bit bizarre how hard, physically hard, Max works at keeping everybody in the crack in the earth. Mm-hmm. Like he shoots at them, he punches Savannah in the face. It's still an issue for me. Right. <laughs> and despite all that effort, as soon as he falls asleep, Screw Loose comes over, unties everybody, and they leave, and they take Sally Ann. Do you think they took Sally Ann? No, or I think Sally think... Ann just went with them. Yeah, that's what I thought. Anna Goanna is, of course, the one to wake up Max and drag him out to the edge of the nothing where everyone is gathered. And Max has a little crossroad moment where he can either ignore the fact that a bunch of people left and doom them to their fate, or he can take responsibility as someone who feels responsible for people and go after them. And of course, he decides to go after them. We get Anna, Tubba, and Eddie eventually accompanying Max. And we get to that point in the movie where they cut out the gecko storyline. And the whole time that I was watching, I was looking looking for relics of that aspect of the story, and I saw them in droves. Oh, yes. You can tell exactly where it was supposed to start, and you can see Gecko several times in a litter. The most obvious one to me that I hadn't noticed the first time around is after the quicksand scene, they are all huddled together on the side of a dune, and it's moonlight, so the coloring... It's very weird. It's kind of hard to distinguish what you're looking at. Yep. But as the kids wake up and start to move, you can see that they are all huddled around a center object that is long and straight. It is Gecko on the litter, and they're all sleeping around him. And they get up, and they go to look at Bartertown, and then they just leave him behind. Yeah. And it's a real shame. I really wish they had put the Gecko stuff back in. I have no desire to actually interview George Miller. I just, that would be an introvert's nightmare for me. But if I could ask him one thing, it would be about that storyline. I don't understand why they took it out. It certainly wasn't for time. And I just don't understand. In my mind, it's a real shame. Yeah. Max brings the kids to Parter Town. They break into Underworld and through shenanigans, a fight breaks out with the guards. And we more or less get into the portion of the movie where Iron Bar is going to keep having these fake out deaths. (laughs) Yeah. He has the bead shoot to the face. He gets drowned in the feces water. He gets blown up on the front of the truck. It's just this whole thing. But through all of the chasing and the fighting, they eventually make it out of Barter Town with Pig Killer and Master, and we start that final chase of the movie. Comparing the final chase of this movie to the final chase of Road Warrior, I'm obviously going to say that the Road Warrior one was better because the people involved had a better chance to fight back and forth. It just seemed like the one for this movie was on the one hand more of the same, but on the other hand just not enough different. Like, yeah, we traded out a truck for a train, but if anything, it just seemed more tame. There wasn't as much bumping and moving and everything like that. It just, you had one big explosion. I don't know. It just, it was all right. I like it. I like that the vehicle is unique. 
mm-hmm. while we were covering it in the minutes, there were often times where we didn't really know what to call it. It's a truck, it's a house, it's a train. So I like that uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Things in this world are no longer clear cut. This is what <laughs> this thing is and this is what it's used for and that's the end of it. Right. Everything can be turned into something else. Everything can have multiple uses. Things aren't being created anymore. They're just being changed from junk into something. So naturally we're going to end up with this contraption that is a truck and a house and a train all at the same time. I think it's very evocative of the time that they live in. Yeah. And I'm okay that it is less brutal because it's centered around kids. Of course, it's going to be less brutal. Yeah. There are not going to be any half-dead bodies hanging off the side that then get caught underneath the wheels and pulled under. Yeah. That's just, wow. I mean, even remembering that from Road Warrior, I'm like, (laughs) holy cow, that is grim. Yeah. So the action that we see in this chase is more on the slapstick side. It's a bit more Three Stooges where it's remove the pin. Oh, no, 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 but hold on to the train. And somebody holds the train together and they grab Master, but then he gets lifted out of their arms. It's very Three Stooges. And considering the environment and the people there, that's entirely appropriate. I also like that we change the setting of the chase. The train, by its very nature, can only do so much or go so far. So they have to abandon it and they have to find something else. And they do. Yep. Jedediah Jr. stops them on the tracks. They chase him into the grotto. And then they, of course, they go out onto the runway and they have the whole thing with the plane. And I love that this is the final vehicle because this was our first vehicle. Yeah. It goes back to that whole bookend thing you were talking about. Yeah. We start with the plane. We end with the plane. Yep. And we start with the plane and the camel truck and we end with the plane and the camel truck. And the respective drivers are back where they belong. Mm -hmm. And Max does the noble thing. He sacrifices his escape to allow the other people to fly away. And as we get to the end of the movie, Max is confronted by Auntie and Auntie lets him live it doesn't make a ton of sense to me even though we've talked about it in the past even though we've thought through it just watching it as a standalone cinematic experience you get to the end and you're like so she's just letting him go it's still perplexing to me even after talking about it for so long (laughs) right i think maybe what i would have liked to see is auntie take him captive and punish him with hard labor. And we close on that. We close with Max in hard labor. But the comics that connect Thunderdome to Fury Road would have been the story of how he escaped and everything else that it includes because he rebuilds his interceptor and then it leads us into Fury Road Mm -hmm. could have included how he escaped. It's just how simple it is. The whole, well, ain't we a pair, raggedy man, goodbye soldier. Maybe if the dialogue was different maybe if she had walked up to him and said instead of well ain't we a pair raggedy man and said i knew there was a reason i liked you you're terribly effective or something like that i don't know i'm usually such a resource for pointless rewrites and things that would infuriate purists but i've got nothing in this instance i expect that the hardest part of a movie to write is the ending yeah i agree and of course we end beyond thunderdome with savannah's narration as they fly into bombed out sydney and we get those established 
establishing shots that they have formed their own tribe and they have their new traditions that they keep up and we get to see Max just wandering on foot into the desert. And that's how we end Beyond Thunderdome. That's how we wrap the Mad Max trilogy, the OT Mad Max. It seems so strange now that we have the next movie down the line and we get to see Max doing other things and continuing his own particular brand of heroism that for 30 years, this was the end. Yeah, this was the closing chapter on Max's story. There was no like public intention to do a fourth movie, not for quite some time. I know that George Miller tried for years to do Fury Road and it was delayed and delayed for this and that, but not 30 years. So for at least 20 to 25 of those years, there was no talk of a sequel. This was just how the trilogy ended, which is so open-ended. Mm-hmm. Although when it comes to Mad Max stories, I think you want them open-ended just in case. I think it's the nature of Max that his story doesn't have conclusions. Other people in his movies have conclusions. He doesn't really. Right. Speaking of conclusions, do you have a favorite thing in this movie? If you had to pick one specific part, what would you say is your favorite? Oh, that is hard. I'm going to say my favorite part of the movie was Savannah's Tell, the first one. Okay. I should specify. I think it encompasses a lot of the themes of not only this movie, but of the Mad Max series as a whole. You listen to her story and it's about people who weren't willing to lay down and accept the apocalypse. They outran Mr. Death and they did everything in their power to stay alive. And that's what Max has been doing and trying to do for the people around him since we met him. Is there a part of the movie that stands out to you as your favorite? My favorite part of this movie is the legwork that Max has to do in order to prepare for the Thunder fight because you think of Max in the past when he was faced with Goose's more or less death he ran away he went on vacation when in Road Warrior he was tasked with getting the rig he just went straight there it was very clear how to do it and he just took care of it here he was given a goal that was rather ambiguous you're gonna do a hit job this is the person you got to kill and he had to take some time he had to prepare he had to move around and gain knowledge and I really liked watching him work because it's a side of Max that I don't think I've ever seen in quite the same way. It's not him just walking from point A to point B and then running a blockade. It's him doing personal investigative research and I really liked seeing that. So I think that would be my favorite thing. Do you have a least favorite part? Anything with the collector. <laughs> I find him just unsavory. Yeah, he's... A giant, bulbous, sweaty man. It was really mostly his hair. Yeah, very distressing. His, his hair really jumped out at me this time. Very long and stringy and just not there, but he won't cut it. Mm -hmm. It's distressing. And yeah, his sweatiness and there's a point where they're walking through barter town and we can see the collector's outfit and he's wearing a mesh shirt, like tank top, Seems very similar in material to what Auntie is wearing. Mm -hmm. And basically, he's got side boob. It's not, the shirt is too big to actually like cover up his chest. And I just find it unpleasant to my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That's very fair. That is very fair. There's a reason that Frank Thring made his money doing biblical epics 
where he was wearing robes. Yeah. Cover all that up so people don't have to look at it. How about you? Was there an unfavorite? My least favorite part of this movie was the fact that the storylines were combined into one movie. I felt that because there were two, that not enough quality time was given to either. I would have so preferred two movies, maybe a two-parter. Like, this is Mad Max... Thunderdome and this is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome part one and part two or something like that turn it into a big budget HBO miniseries or something like that heck I would love a Mad Max HBO series oh yeah especially in the vein of the way they've been doing TV shows with limited runs the quality is just so high it would be magnificent yeah if Miller has so many stories to tell and so many ideas baked away and so many characters Characters to pull from HBO is going to be losing Game of Thrones awfully quick and if all they have for big drama type shows is Westworld well they're going to need something else so why not go post-apocalyptic minus the zombies <laughs> don't go the walking dead route do you have any final thoughts or recommendations as we get to the end of talking about Beyond Thunderdome here I think that Beyond Thunderdome falls into an interesting category. I think casual viewers will like it. I think over-analytical viewers like us, minute-by-minute type viewers, will like it. I think it's that middle ground would be like critics, reviewers and critics don't like it. It's on the surface, it's just a fun movie. If you start looking at the storyline, you start to see the holes and the problems and you don't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it minutely, you find lots of things to like again. Yeah. So if you're just looking for a good time, it's a good movie. I think that as a third entry in the original trilogy of the Mad Max series, that Beyond Thunderdome is a pretty good entry. I look at the first three Mad Max movies very much like the first three Star Wars movies. New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Beyond Thunderdome is absolutely the Return of the Jedi of the Mad Max series for all of its pros and its cons for how busy it can be for how many different directions it goes in for the kid-friendly aspects to it if you can watch Star Wars through Return of the Jedi and like all of those movies you can very much watch Mad Max 1 through 3 and like all of those movies absolutely and that pretty much brings us to the end we've got one more minute to talk about for Beyond Thunderdome that's going to be happening on Wednesday it's definitely going to be out of the ordinary if what I've cooked up comes to fruition I don't want to get anybody's hopes up we're definitely not Skyping with George Miller don't think we're doing anything (laughs) like that although don't although George Miller if you are listening despite what Julia has said about being incredibly nervous at the prospect of it have your people contact us madmaxminute at gmail.com send us an email at the very least explain gecko to us (laughs) so as for the rest of you come back on Wednesday and just see what we've got cooked up The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. 
Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 106 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody!